Al Fadi was raised a devout Sunni Wahhabi Muslim believer. He uh, was drawn to Jesus through when he came to the United States from Saudi Arabia through the love of two Christian families. And he came and is now a follower of Jesus, and that's a longer story than I just made it. But it is a story of God's grace. It is a story of God's redemption. It is a story of God's plan. And he is uh, now spends his life sharing the gospel and teaching about how to reach <clears throat> Muslims for Jesus Christ. And uh, he teaches up at Gordon-Conwell classes. There is a radio and satellite ministry. And he is also the founder of the Center for Islamic Research and Awareness International. And uh, I believe he's got a real word and timely word for us this morning. Would you welcome Al Fadi as he comes to speak to us today? Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for this uh, wonderful opportunity. I know um, uh, you've changed your service uh, just for me, and uh, I know the Belmont uh, people are waiting for me. Now, you need to realize we're Arab, so time means nothing to us. So uh, we may or may not be done on time, and the people in Belmont just have to wait. All right. So thank you, Pastor Rick. Um, as he mentioned to you, I am a former Muslim, uh, born and raised in Saudi Arabia, the heartland of Islam. In fact, Saudi is the country that most Muslims wish to can go and live there, but they face daily in prayer, and they visit at least once in their lifetime to do the pilgrimage that just finished a couple of weeks ago. And I happen to live 45 minutes away from Mecca, the place where Islam started it. And the fact that Islam is a religion of works, I've always felt privileged and honored that God made me a Muslim and made me basically born to a Muslim family so that I can accumulate all of these good deeds that many Muslims long to do. I thought I knew God. I thought I was following the true God. But God has a totally different plan for me. Now today I'm going to share with you, in light of our environment here in the States lately, related to not the election, but at least things that come with that baggage. And one of them is dealing with the crises, as the media calls it, of refugees. I personally do not call it a crisis. I call it an opportunity that we reach out to the nations. One of the things that God has done with his people, especially in the Old Testament, is that when they resisted to go to the nations, he brought the nations to them, albeit sometimes in a different way than they would have expected. And God is doing exactly the same thing with the church in the West. He is bringing nations to them and giving the church, in my view, one last opportunity to deal with those nations that are displaced, that are oppressed, that have been locked inside their own communities for decades, unable to hear the gospel freely, unable to leave that prison called Islam, and unable to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior without the ramifications that they would receive in terms of being persecuted, prosecuted, executed sometimes, or ostracized and disowned by their own family. Believe me. I went through it, and I know what I'm talking about. The passage that I chose for our service today 
comes from a book that you probably meditate on on a daily basis, known as the book of Leviticus. And it is Leviticus 19, verses 33 to 34. That will be the focus of my message today. And as you can see on the screen, the passage is very straightforward. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, that you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, we were all strangers. One way or another, we did not know him as Lord and Savior. And the Lord used someone or something to draw you to him. And in this passage, the Lord is doing something also to draw those who do not know him to a saving knowledge about him. Now, some will say, well, Leviticus is Old Testament book. Why do I worry about the Old Testament book? That's a good question. But the fact is that all scripture is God-breathed tells me that Leviticus is part of what God spoke. And if God spoke it, I will obey it. Not only I will obey it, but I will also look for perils of wisdom that I can use out of this passage to apply to my life as a believer today. For instance, this particular chapter, chapter 19 of Leviticus, is known as the holiness chapter. In fact, this is how God expects us to behave. Why? To be set apart, different than all the nations around us. For what purpose? Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may, what? Know your good deeds or see your good deeds and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, it's all about God. It's not about us. The reason why I behave in, this, in such a way as a believer and I transform from being someone who used to live this way to someone who now lives in such a different way is because of the Holy Spirit that God has graciously have given to me and filled me with. So this is the ultimate purpose of this holiness, uh, basically, code that is given to us in Leviticus 19. And it's kind of interesting, really, the whole book actually could be broken out in a simple fashion. The first at least 16 chapters deal with sin, an offering for forgiveness and atonement. And the grace of God is shown in there. Then it deals also with how the high priest are to intercede between God and his people. And today we have our Lord Jesus Christ who is our high priest. Who is in the holy of holies right now. Interceding on our behalf. But then it moves on immediately to how we ought to live our life. Not that we are saved, now that we have also our high priest interceding in our behalf, it doesn't come just like that for us to sit and do nothing. God is saying, I've done it for you, then here is the least I expect from you. Will you live a holy life so that those who do not know me will know me through you? In 1 Peter chapter 1, 13-19, Peter quotes directly, from this particular passage when he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy, in reference, basically, to this particular chapter. Now, the holiness code, by the way, also means 
that we ought to show grace even to those who are our enemies. Matthew chapter 5 verse 44. I came to the States thinking that Islam was the final religion, that all of the things that God taught me as a Muslim are final, revealed by him, and part of those is that I would not really show respect to others who are not Muslims. Not only that, as a fundamentalist Muslim, I didn't even show respect to Muslims who are mediocre cultural Muslims as well, because I had this sense of Pharisaic superiority. And then God says, you don't even know me. And I'll show you what's it like to walk like me and be a believer in me. When I came to the States, I needed help with idioms out of all things. I spoke English just fine. But what it was idioms that challenged me the most. In fact, within the first two weeks, I discovered something I never expected. Americans speak Americanese, not English. And people will casually say, what's up? I look up immediately. I didn't know what was up. (laughs) And sometimes people want to pick my brain and others want to pull my leg. And I have no idea why would they want to do any of these things. So I went to my teacher and I explained that to her. She laughed. She said, no problem. Those are idioms. There are services for international students on campus that they can help you with this. They will team you up with someone. Little that I knew, those are Christian ministries. And I ended up being teamed up with a born-again couple. Up until that moment, I thought all Americans are Christians. But when I saw that couple and the holiness code that was exhibited in their life, I knew they're different. And then, within a few months, I left that campus, went to another place, severed my relationship with them, and years went by, and I began to learn and grow until I finally attended church for the first time after debating people over Islam and the fact that Islam is the truth, and they were gracious with me to share the truth from the Scripture and challenge me to examine the gospel for myself rather than to rely on people who taught me all of my life. And it was when I attended church in May of 2001 that I began to, began to hear the gospel being preached from the gospel of John from the pulpit. And all of a sudden, all of the things that I denied as a Muslim, the Trinity, the fatherhood of God, the sonship of Christ, His eternal existence, His deity, the Holy Spirit, all of those were becoming more and more clear to me. And it was when September 11 happened, that weekend, the pastor preached from Matthew chapter 5, 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecuted you. And you can imagine how embarrassed I was that day. And I asked myself a very simple question. If the God of the Quran is the God of the Bible, then something fundamentally changed in his theology. And I need to know why would he change his attitude if his word doesn't change and no one can change the word of God, then why would he change his mind about his enemies? And that was the passage that brought me to my knees. It was sort of the nail that sealed the coffin, as we say. And it was that passage 
that made me accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Then, as a Muslim, I've always studied that Islam came to cancel everything. And I always used to think the Old Testament was canceled by the New Testament, and then Islam came to cancel both, old and new. And I attended seminary in 2008, and wouldn't you know it, God is so gracious. One of my projects was to do a research paper on Matthew 5, 17. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And I can tell you, I am a firm believer that the Old Testament and the New Testament go hand in hand. Now, I understand. I understand that the Lord's death came to fulfill the things that were given to us in the Old Testament. I understand that there are things in there that we are not to do anymore. But there is still the spirit of application applies to this day. And I'll show you a couple of examples of this. Now back to the passage that we were reading from in Leviticus 19. We ought to understand why does that chapter, in fact the whole book, over and over again ends with this phrase, I am the Lord your God. This is a covenant language, by the way. Now why this covenant language is given to us? It's given to us first to show God's grace. By the way, you study the scripture cover to cover, and God is the one who redeemed people. He went after the lost in order to save them. Jesus did exactly the same. The Son of Man came to seek and to save. When I appeared on satellite TV in 2007 for the first time to share my testimony, they asked me, do you want to use your real name or do you want to use a pseudonym? I said, you know, real name can get me and my family in real trouble. But I want to use a pseudonym that is meaningful also. It's not just about hiding my identity, but I want him to shine through that new identity. And I, that, that's why I assumed the name Abdul Fadi. Of course, Fox News couldn't spell all of it. They call me Al-Fadi. That's fine. Which is servant of the Redeemer. Problem is, Al-Fadi in Arabic means I am the Redeemer. And I said, no, I'm not. My Lord is the Redeemer. That's the one name that is missing from the 99 so-called names of the God of Islam. So I volunteered that name for him for free. Because Muslims need to know him as the Redeemer. He is the one that shows grace to the lost. Covenant language also establishes a fellowship with God. When you read Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments and the laws that came before, after it, and you read Leviticus, and you read Deuteronomy, it's all about the relationship between God's people and their Redeemer for the purpose of setting Him apart so that the world will know Him through that distinction. And of course, it always involves blessings, and unfortunately, the backlash, the negative side is cursing if we do not obey the Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you. We ought to set our priorities in order. As I mentioned, the lie is given to us so that we would have an example. Let me read an example for you. To further elaborate on what I mean, 
Leviticus 19, for instance, verses 9 to 10, tells us in general that if you have a land, that you're harvesting that land, that you ought not to strip your vineyard bare, but to leave the fringes for the poor and for the sojourner. Notice how God cares for those who are foreigners, even though maybe some of them came with money. But they're still feeling basically strange, feeling that they are ostracized, feeling that they're marginalized, feeling that they are in a different atmosphere than theirs. And God says, I want to take care of their economical needs and their health. Let them eat some of the food on the fringes. Now, that was back then in the Old Testament. Some of you will say, well, I'm not a farmer. I don't have a land. Thank you for clarifying that to me. Let me tell you this. This preaches, by the way, in Nebraska. However, how can we apply the principle of this passage today that we ought to be hospitable, generous? It requires sacrifice on our part. It requires us to show grace to those foreigners. That still applies till this day. The Holiness Code also teaches about us being good neighbors. For instance, in Exodus 22 to 22, verse 21, it says that you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Same thing that we just read in Leviticus 19. In Zechariah 7.10, we read something that has been repeated over and over and over again in the scripture. Notice the class that God places the sojourners with. He equates him to the widow, the fatherless, and the poor. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. You'll see this basically classification repeated over and over again. God doesn't look at the foreigners and the aliens the way we look at him. He looks at him as people without a father. Indeed, they are without a spiritual father. People that they are poor. They're without sense of security. And many, by the way, aliens and so-called refugees, they are women with children that have no husbands. Either their husband is dead or lost or maybe he's still being vetted out and have yet to receive his paperwork. I've met many refugees where the husband and the wife have been separated for years because of the vetting process that the UN puts them through. This passage makes sense. But here's what I want to tell you. In Ezekiel 22 verse 7, God was making a charge against his people. You remember, you have Ezekiel and you have Jeremiah, the so-called the two speakers effect. One prophet was in Jerusalem, Ezekiel was in Babylon, and they were reminding the people of God of why the Babylonians have took them into exile. And this is the charge. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but things like this really wake me up. Make me realize that God is not about a nation. God is about his people. In God's eye, we are not Americans first. We are believers and his children. And that ought to be the attitude of our church. And I'm not picking on you. I'm talking about the church everywhere. 
In God's mind, we belong to him. That's our citizenship is in heaven. That's our identity. We are saved by him. He is our heavenly father. He is our redeemer. So how does this apply then to Leviticus 19? I want to put it for you in context. By the way, just like you hear in real estate, location, 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 context in the Bible matters. If you look at Leviticus 19, 33 to 34, before you get there, starting from verse 9, we see that God is taking care of the poor and the sojourner in terms of the economical conditions and showing him hospitality and generosity. Leaving your fruit and uh, vegetables and your basically uh, uh, trees not be trimmed on the fringes. And then starting from verse 11, begins to talk about justice. The things that you ought not to do, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely. And then he gets in verse 13 to the neighbor. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. In verse 15, you shall do no justice, injustice in court. And then we get to 17 and he talks once again about our neighbor. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. And then later says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here is what happened. 1,300 years have passed. The Lord came. And apparently the people of God misinterpreted this particular passage and thought the neighbor is their relative only. It's no wonder then Jesus says, who is your neighbor? And in Luke 10 gave us this excellent example of the Samaritan. The one that the Jews hated the most. And was saying, that's how good neighbors ought to be. And he elaborated further in Matthew 5:44. You've heard it says he says, "Love your neighbor, love your relative, but hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecuted you." And then we get to Leviticus 19. You see, once you look at the context, you begin to see that God is building a foundation why you ought to treat the sojourners this way, with justice, with generosity, hospitality, and making him feel that they belong. And now he emphasized it when he says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You see, God expects us to be hospitable and gracious to those around us. Just because they did not belong to our nation, just because they don't have a name that we can recognize, it doesn't mean we have the right to treat them differently. One of the most astounding things that I felt when I came is how these people treated me with respect and dignity. That my own people back home did not. Why do you think many of these Muslims are fleeing? You think they're fleeing because they're treated well? Because they have hope? And why are they coming west instead of going south and east to other Islamic countries? Doesn't that tell us something about how they feel about other Muslims? Isn't this a golden opportunity for us to show them what Christians are like? So that they finally open their ears to hear the gospel. By the way, they come from countries that for years missionaries have tried very hard to share the gospel. But no success. 
And God is saying, no worries, I got a better plan. How about I bring boatload of them over here? Would that help? And what are we doing? Oh, no, Lord. No, thank you. Thank you very much. You can keep him back there. Is that the attitude that we want to show our Lord? Is this is how we want to appear to him when he suddenly appears on the clouds? That we are sitting doing nothing? Rejecting those that he is saying, they need me. He's not bringing him over here, by the way, because they need us. Trust me, I'll show you the passage that will prove this. Nevertheless, I want to move on to the next part, verse 34, which is powerful. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. And the word in Hebrew is Isra. In Arabic, Isra. When you take a plant and you plant it in a new soil, that's what it is. It's almost a picture of a new birth now. They're planted in a new place. Now, if you go to Genesis 12, verse 4, when the Lord called Abraham to leave, and it says, and Abraham left, that verb that was used in the Hebrew, also in a farming language, is almost like pulling a plant so hard that parts of the roots are still there. There is a part of me in Saudi, by the way. But I am so thankful that God used believers like you to plant me here so that today I will have a ministry like this. What a privilege to stand before you and tell you that for 33 years of my life I hated you. And I had bad intentions towards you. And I rejected your Christ and I rejected your Bible. What do you think God did? He brought me to a saving knowledge. He sent me to seminary. I graduated last year with my MDev so I can defend the very Bible that I rejected for 33 years. Do you think God has a sense of humor? Amen to that. Amen to that. That's the work of our Lord himself. It is not by my own wisdom or by own doings. Brothers, I still have a couple of minutes to share with you something important. Our Lord in Matthew 25 distinguished at his second coming between two groups. And I'm just going to only focus on one phrase. In 2535, he says those who welcomed him. And in 2543, those who did not welcome him. And when he was asked, when did we welcome you? He gave a list of all these people, including the sojourners that were welcomed. And if you've done any of these things to the least of them, you've done it unto me. I don't know about you, but I do not want him to judge me one day and say, you never welcomed me. And you didn't care for my needs. These people have a lot of needs. Let me ask if I say the word Sodom and Gomorrah, what would be the sin that comes to your mind? I can guarantee you, without even you verbalizing it, it is sexual immorality. Homosexuality that will come to your head. Let me add to that list. In Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50, look at the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. 
I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, that we are headed in that direction. You look at the sin of, the sin of the Canaanites, and they offered their sons and daughters as sacrifices to idols. Let's take a, a quick survey about the sin of our nation. Abortion, killing children, that's a Canaanite sin. Sexual immorality, that's Sodom and Gomorrah. A host of other sins that are tolerated. And what do we think we need to add to that list as a church also? We do not want to welcome the sojourners. I think we're giving God now no choices but to move to plan B. And I believe plan B is so far patience and grace. I'm bringing him to your backyard. Let's see what we're going to do. I don't want to think about plan C to be honest with you. Because I do not see a pretty picture. The Lord is patience and his patience is salvation. Let me close by this. In Acts 17, verses 26 to 27, this is what we read. And he, in reference to God, this is Paul making the, this sermon. God made from one man, that is Adam, every nation of mankind. By the way, underline the word every. Every nation includes Muslims, by the way. Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Why? Because the earth belongs to God. He can move people everywhere he wants. Having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they, notice, they should seek him, perhaps feel their way towards him, and find him. This is the three-part ministry of God to redeem people. And he's bringing these aliens, refugees to our backyard, that they may seek him in hope that they may feel their way towards him, literally touch him. How? By you touching their lives and may find him. That's what happened to me when I came. My life was touched by this family and I severed my relationship with them within months. It took 12 years for that seed to grow into salvation. And it took me 10 more years after that to find them and say thank you. 22 years have passed when I finally connected by the grace of God. They said we were praying for you this month. For 22 years they never ceased to pray. And they couldn't believe that I was even saved. Let me tell you how God used this family. Today the Lord has blessed me with a ministry that is global. Via media, TV, radio teachings in persons, thousands have heard this testimony, not to mention how many have read it, how many have watched those videos that I've taught, or even testimony online. Because of the faithfulness of one couple, they weren't theologians, they were not pastors, they were faithful believers who lived the gospel right before me. And God honored it. You can do it as well. Thank you so much. The Lord bless you.